You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Welcome to Three Geeky Ladies. Our fearless leader, Elisa Pacelli, uh, can't make it today. So Vicki Stokes and Suze Gilber, who is me, we will be your colorful host today talking about our favorite summer books to read. Hey, Vicki, how you doing? How good. I'm starting part two. We have a bunch of books. I know. <laughs> part two already. I know we had so many books. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to mention before we get started is that I had issues. The last time we did our podcast, I had issues with my mic. And I had a blue tiki, from a blue microphone. Uh, and it just stopped working. I've only had it since March. And I only use it for the podcast. So I was just trying to figure out what was going on with it. And I sent an uh, email to their support. No response. Sent another email to the support. No response. So I sent this really nasty email. I'm going, <laughs> I can't believe you guys. When you guys decide you're not going to work, you know, you don't work, do you? And it's, it's, it was just really nasty. And I got this email back from them saying uh, some weeks later saying, oh, we, we apologize. We had issues with our support website being down. So we weren't getting any um, our support uh, issues forwarded to us. He said, I just got this and I'm going to send you a brand new Blue Tiki uh, mic. I said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just, because, you know, if you've ever been to Macworld and met these people at their booth, they're cool. They're way cool. They always give us free stuff anyway. Um, and But I didn't want anything free. I paid for that, that Blue Tiki mic. Um, and it worked just fine. Uh, it's just like I had the Blue Yeti. It works beautifully, too. And I've had that for years. So I expected them to, you know, maybe help me troubleshoot it or maybe send me another one because I... I, I think it's probably still on a warranty. And, um, but I mentioned that I use it for my podcast. I wanted something portable. And not only did they send me a blue tiki mic, but they sent me a snowball. Uh, a snowflake, I think is what it's called. Is it a snowball? I don't know. Whatever. Snow something. <laughs> and I'm using it for this podcast. So let's hope that that, that is uh, as pristine sounding as the uh, Blue Yeti is you, or the Blue Tiki. You sound wonderful. I at love least it. My end. I love it. Well, that's, that's the way it was out of week, though. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like I had a bunch of stuff in the background. I don't like doing it from my office because it, it has this echoey kind of sound because I guess I don't have enough stuff in this office. <laughs> Maybe I need to put some bookshelves or books on it or something to make it not sound so echoey. But, um, yeah, I just want to give a shout out to Blue Microphone there. Class Act, I love their products, and now I've got three of their mics. <laughs> oh, I'm jealous. So now you're recording right now with the Snowflake or Snowball, correct? Yeah, Snow, Snowflake, I think it's called. Yeah. And you've had, do they still make the Blue Yeti? I mean, is that something? Yeah, they that... still make it. I still have it. But the, I was having an issue with the Tiki. It was a brand new one that they came out with. Uh, I bought it at Macworld. So. And what? What is the, the, the big selling feature with the microphones? They're, well, these are portable. Um, you can mm-hmm. actually, the Snowflake, you can, you can actually hang it on the back of your um, the laptop uh, or you can set propped on the desk. It's very small. Um, so if you want to do it in your office, uh, use it in your office or take it on the road with you, it's easy to use. You just click it onto the back of your um, laptop 
or just have it sitting on the, on the desk right beside the computer. It's really, it's really cool. And same way, they bought, uh, they're all USB mics, but the Bluetiki is the same way. It just plugs right into uh, the USB port, so it's hanging like a doggone on the side of your uh, laptop, so you don't have to worry about it. But in the Yeti, of course, it's the big, big microphone. It looks like the stereotypical radio microphone um, back in the day. Um, I, I got that because I thought it looked way cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So you buy you buy them because they look. They cool. look pretty so, cool. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I'm looking at the blue tiki, and that's really cool. It's so it's just attached to a, a USB. Yeah, yeah. And you just pop it into your USB port. Mm-hmm. Do they have one for like an iPhone? Do they have something that I'm you sure they do? For? They have all kinds of mics. Um, I I don't have one. Um, anything like that. Maybe that's what I get next time at MacWorld. One of their. And it's noise canceling. It looks like the the blue tiki is a noise canceling type of. Um, yeah, you can actually microphone. adapt it to your environment if, if you if you want to. You just lightly touch it, and it'll change the color. You know which type of uh, environment you're in. Um, um, I, I forgot what they call it. Uh, there's a different modes you can put the mic in too. Now, what about the snowflake? Does that have noise canceling as well, or no? Uh, it, probably has something built in but it doesn't have that feature where you can switch modes you just you just plug it in and it just works you know set the input to uh the snowflake and there you go oh, that's really nice. yeah I'm you don't need any website. drivers or anything that's what's so cool to me yeah we'll put it in the show notes but if anybody's interested in this usb uh microphone that vicky's talking about the yeti the the blue yeti the blue tiki and the snowflake it is bluemicmic.com. Yeah, that the nice website. Too. Yeah, it's cool. So, and you can get them on Amazon and stuff too if you, I guess, shop around. So, yeah. All right. Well, Vicky, you can start off. What is your favorite? One of your favorite books to talk about? Oh, my favorite book. Um, I have been reading Janet Ivanovich's series of books. Uh, the Plum series, uh, the Stephanie Plum, and you probably know they did a movie on it. It was an awful movie with. Uh, no, I don't remember that. It's called oh, it's One for the Money with, with um, Catherine Heigl in it, and it looked so. I didn't go see it because it looked like they had videotaped it. The trailers oh. looked so bad. I was like, it does not look like this was uh, done by professionals. <laughs> And then from wow. what I gathered, it was awful. Um, kind of like the Blair Witch Project or on a much worse level? Um, Blair Witch was sort of a project-y kind of crazy thing. And actually, yeah. Blair Witch's uh, cinematography looked a heck of a lot better. <laughs> it did, yeah. I mean, the colors looked sort of... It was like something from the 70s, you know? that uh, It just was, looked so doggone bad. And this was the trailers at the movie theater. <laughs> so, God, that's pretty bad. But uh, the series is really good. It's about this um, female um, bounty hunter. She falls into being it. She was like a lingerie sales lady, and she's from New Jersey. And um, it's a lot of uh, her running around with her crazy, wacky friends and her cop boyfriend. Um, and it's, it's a series. I think they're on number 20, 21. Um, wow. And it's all like one for the money, two for the dough, three. It's three, you know, it's series. And that's how you know. Yeah. The different names based on the number. Um, and it's just cute. You get to know the characters. And you just want to know 
what's happening with them. Um, and it's an easy, fast summer read. It's not, you know, um, heavy. Um, uh, I just like it. Um, and it's Stephanie Ivanovich and their Plum series, Stephanie Plum. Well, you know, it's interesting, I think, about some of these authors, like, for instance, Sue Grafton. I remember oh, years, I love years her. ago. Oh, gosh. You know, I started, mm-hmm. you know, with A, B, C, you know, yep. I started all yep. that. And it was, oh, I, uh, Kelsey. I can't remember her last I name. I don't remember but either. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I used to really enjoy it. And then it became, I'm not sure if it was M or N She's or not doing her, during, yeah, yeah. It, it became very repetitive, yeah. uh, very predictable. She starts um, dealing with her own issues. And it's, I'm still like, I'm tired of you and you're, okay, you don't have a family, you're on your own kind of thing, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it was, and I, I think, it, yeah, I, I agree. It kind of took on this like whiny tone yeah. and then that, it lost it for me. So I think I stopped around M. I think and I did too. I don't remember the last yeah. one I read, but I, I don't look forward to it anymore. Yeah. I was hoping to get to to the end and it'll be Z, and I hope she doesn't go A A B B. That'd be ridiculous. Well, Stephen King, you know, being from Maine, Stephen King is like a god in Maine. You know, I mean, he is the author. If you're from Maine, you have to read Stephen King. Yep. And uh, his house is really cool up in um, Bangor. Uh, it has like this wrought iron. Um, fence around it with replete with bats and all these creatures. He he's he's really a neat guy, and he actually he and his wife Tabitha do a lot for um, UMO, the University of Maine at Orono. They they're big donors to their sports, and they're very very uh, generous. And as far as philanthropy, they've done a lot for people in Maine. Yeah, but I have to say, somewhere along as an author, his books, um, he lost it for me. <clears throat> Because I, every book that – I think what happens is these authors start coming out with a book every year and you feel like you need to catch up. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're not like two or 300-page books. They're 600, 700-page books. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, I mean – and I think when you're writing in such volume that you tend to repeat yourself. I mean they tend to get very formulatic, I think, you know, so – I don't know, but I have to say that some of Stephen King's um, earlier novels I still like, and I have. I know my son read. I want to. It's not a gunslinger series, but he read a series that he really liked, and I know that he has. uh, Stephen King has also um, done some um, co-writing with other authors, but I feel bad because I kind of lost it. You know, I think. I, I I I what I like about King is that he treats women very well and they're not wimpy, whiny characters. Right. She has strong exactly. women characters in his novels. Um, for instance, that Lois Claiborne is one of them and every female in that novel has some backbone to them, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and But it, it, the, that New England area, that the, the accent, the whole thing... Is just so into uh, his novels. It's, 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 it's that's his life, you know. Um, but it's sort of eerie. His stories, in my my opinion, they're so unpredictable. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I like the way he writes, and you know, I like the way he set. The, I'll be honest with you. When I first saw Carrie years ago, when it first came out, um, I think Sissy's basic played in it. I was scared to death. And then when, when Salem's Lot came out, back when I was uh, in high school, Salem's Lot came out. And I read it under the covers. And <laughs> I'm telling you, one night I think my mother came in and I, I just screamed bloody murder. I, you, he, he, 
at that so time, eerie. Lighting, it's just really eerie. It was, and it was so strong. It, it's not, it wasn't I mean, bump in the night kind of scary. It's no, just an eerie that, think, uh, 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 environment that he creates. Oh, and you know, when you live in Maine, even though he fictionalizes some of the places, I mean, you know it's Maine, and you have always you've been through a town like mm-hmm. that. You know these quiet little towns where you blink and you're through the yeah, town. Yeah. And Cujo, oh, oh my man. gosh, Could you I, imagine I that? Cujo. I was frightened to death when I read Cujo. I think it brought so, up I mean, this fear I had of being locked into some place and not being able to get out, and yeah. being in that car and a dog, and it was just like God Almighty and her kid. You know what do you do? You know it was just. Ah, gosh, it's just... I think the only one I didn't care, what started to lose it for me was the Tommyknockers. I'm sure maybe that's some of people's favorite, but I love The Stand, you know, and these were, like I said, his earlier novels, and I think I might revisit, you know, there's sometimes when you just like to read horror, but I don't necessarily like to read, um, like, I'm going to be honest with you, the movie, when my son, this was years ago, he said, let's watch Saw. And that first movie, I was so freaked out. It took me weeks to get over that. It was a psychological thing. I think that's what Stephen King does. He plays with your psyche. Those books stay with you for the psychological horror. I would never want to see another movie. I don't want to see any of the other Saw. The first one did. The first one, I I, I didn't didn't particularly care for the Saw series. But but that sort of reminds me of The Walking Dead, too. The Walking Dead is like the um, the characters. It's about how these people survive and it's about their character and what character comes out when you're in some kind of conflict like this it's not just about the zombies walking around killing people I mean hey after a while if that, if that was the only story part of the story it'd be over because that's all they do is walk around and eat people you know so Great. it has to be something else it's the people fighting each other so we would never survive the zombie apocalypse because we'd kill each other you know so <laughs> Well, like that being said, I think, you know, I might go back and read some maybe later Stephen King because I think he does a great job with place, yeah. a sense of place. Yeah. yeah. But um, I like the less fantastical um, of his writings. Yeah. I like it when it's more real. Like I, you could picture, you know, Cujo having, you know, yeah. a, a you don't, you don't like, like the long or, sagas like The Stand and... and yeah, I did like the yeah. stand though. I really did. I thought yeah. I thought that I like the book. I didn't like the, the TV thing. Yeah, I did, I didn't read. I only read the yeah. book. I I like that sense of yeah. you know apocalyptic desolation. Yeah, yeah. you know I because that's how I envisioned. Yeah, it, you know, yeah. and and when he was going down the main turnpike, I could envision that because I go down. I used to go down the main turnpike all the time. So. Um, no, I do like him. I, I really do. I think, and I think for his longevity to, to, to still be writing and, and helping other writers his, too, you know, that's, that's yeah, really, his book. Yeah. And I should mention that a shout yeah. out on his book for people that want to write his book that's titled on writing. And it's a, it's about his advice on how to write and what you need to think about writing. Uh, that's a very, very good book. Yeah. That's up in my library. Yeah. I think that's a fabulous yeah. book on writing. Yeah. How to get started, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And continue with it. Because, you know, writer's block and artist block, all mm-hmm. that. But that's it. On writing, you know, you can basically um, kind of segue that into any type of creative process. Yes. Yeah. Well, the book I'm going to talk about that I read last year and I liked, actually, because I really do like reading a lot about, um, and this is going to sound odd, but I like reading about World War II. Mm -hmm. And I like, in particular, maybe it's my Polish lineage, but I do read, not that I like reading about it, but the Holocaust and all, it just interests me. And this particular book 
Um, it's called Americans in Paris, and it's Life and Death Under Nazi Occupation. It's by Charles Glass. It's a it's a, about a 500-page novel, um, so it's not a real quick read. But what interested me about this particular book was there were a lot of, uh, during the Nazi occupation of Paris, there were a lot of American expatriates. Um, and what Charles Glass does with this book, he basically extrapolates the, the big expatriates, you know, the ones that were, <clears throat> excuse me, crucial, um, you know, in their efforts. Like, for instance, Sylvia Beach, who we all know started uh, Shakespeare and Company, the, the bookstore, and she had to move and her struggles during the Nazi occupation. Also about, <clears throat> he also uh, spent quite a few pages uh, about on uh, Charles Badeau, who he was French born, but he was a, he was a naturalized American and he, he was an entrepreneur and he, um, he had a chateau there and they kind of lived this little enchanted life, you know, discussing art and uh, culture and because they really didn't think the Germans were, were going to invade and they did invade Paris in June, um, 1940. So he talked about Charles Badeau, who actually, I believed, um, they, at the end of the war, they um, captured him, the Allies captured him, and they charged him with treason. So that's all discussed. Also about Sumner Jackson, who was a Mainer. He was a native Mainer, and he kept the American hospital in Paris going during that occupation. And he also helped Allied soldiers under the premise of them being ill and needing care. He helped them escape from France. So there's some really interesting uh, sub-stories into this. I, I wish he had, would have written it a little uh, more smoothly because you kind of go back and forth a lot. But what I didn't know is that um, the Boston Symphony Orchestra... Um, they, you know, they benefited from this benefactress, this Florence Gould, who was married to Jay Gould, who is a, a robin bearer, and she was a Nazi sympathizer. And that was, I was just blown away. So he did touch upon, you know, many of these characters like Coco Chanel and all of them, even though he's talking about the Americans in Paris, he does touch upon, uh, because you really have to, about some of the uh, Nazi sympathizers at the time. But also, you know, there were some good, there were really some good people that tried very hard uh, through all those, you know, rations and, you know, the Germans. I think he did a really good job describing, you know, the boots marching down at, uh, the streets of the Champs-Élysées every morning. But there was also uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, his daughter Alice, uh, she tried, the, the sister-in-law of Alice tried to keep the American library open during all this time as well. So I think, uh, as far as if you're interested in that period of time, this is, this is a nice book to kind of just augment your knowledge about, uh, the Americans that were living there. Uh, he, I, the, one of them was Josephine Baker, who fabulous woman had a, you know, a, a place, uh, in Paris and what she would do is she would um, take black, you know, have black musicians and put them in her band and say they were part of her traveling band, and then they could she could get them to safety, you know, because she had a pass through the Vichy government that she could, you know, travel because she was so popular. 
And so she basically was able to go to Spain and go to, you know, these other places, and then they could get to safety. So a lot of heroes, a lot of heroines in, in World War II. So good book. So Americans in Paris, it's a good summer read. Wow. It's interesting. Well, let me get back to the light side of reading again. <laughs> uh, I, my favorite is another serial book. Uh, is uh, Sarah Pereski's V.I. Wachowski series. Um, I haven't read, uh, um, I think the last one I read was like in uh, 2010, Body Works, I think it was, the last one I read. Uh, so I haven't really been keeping up on it, but it's one of the ones I turn to when I just want to get back to a familiar character. And this is a, um, they did a movie on this one too. <laughs> um, it was called V.I. Wachowski. Um and VI stands for Vic, Vicky, Victoria Iphigenia um, as her name. She's a private investigator for Chicago. Um, and what I like about it is that I, 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 been, I used to go to Chicago all the time. I had relatives there. And she lived in the south side of Chicago. And I got relatives on the south side. And um, it's just all the characters and their family members. I know people like these people that are... So Chicago, have you ever been there? Have you ever spent any time there? You feel like you're there. Um, her characters are so, they're generally related to uh, the cases that she's involved with, which is like white collar crime. And sometimes her family members get are tangentially related to the, the issues. Um, but, and that's how you pretty much get to know her and her characters. And she has this nice neighbor um, that looks after her. Um, but she's a badass, you know. She, she used to be a cop. <laughs> then she went to, to, to law school. Um, and so she gets away with stuff because, she, you know, she can take care of herself. She knows karate. She carries a big old Smith, Smith, Smith & Wesson semi-automatic pistol. <laughs> so, and she's just really a tough cookie, uh, and that's pretty much what a neighbor calls her, cookie. <laughs> it's just so cute. I just love this story, um, and it just like you said, we were talking about Maine. It just puts you into that place, you know. Uh, and um, she cooks too. So when she starts cooking, I, I decide, oh, I'm going to make pasta today because Vi made something and it sounds so good. I want to try to make this. <laughs> But it's pretty good. It's a really good story. Um, if you're into serials, this one, good. And, of course, I like the strong female character. Well, and that, you know, that's what's really nice. That's why I was like Kay Scarpetta, because she was mm -hmm. really strong, yeah. too. Yeah. You know, and it is nice to be able to read and then have a a character that you like continue on, you know, and in a, the next book. So, you know, you have a serial type. Yeah. Of, I don't know why I didn't, I didn't uh, relationship. With I don't know why I didn't add that. Cause that's, she's definitely, I read all of those. I'm, I'm, I, uh, I did miss it. I missed that last, well, the first part I did. Okay. There it is. <laughs> um, part one, I mentioned that. I, I love her. Uh, is there, they also had this show on uh, TV. I think they canceled it. it sort of was based on this. Um, yeah. Well, um, they canceled. I forgot the name of it. Just about everything I read turns into a movie or a TV show. Oh, you're so popular. Yeah. You pick up popular things. I know. I know. And that's so, that's I'm just too, you know, common. No, you're not. Oh, that's not what I meant. To say. No, that's what I mean. No. I'm into, I'm into the know, mass media stuff. Sometimes it upsets me, though, when you love a book so much. Mm -hmm. 
and then it turns into a movie. Mm-hmm. Because for me, part of the magic about reading is... Create the characters and how they look. Is, yeah. Yes, and how they look in your yeah. mind. Sometimes I don't mind that. Other times I do. Game of Thrones, um, I, I definitely prefer the book better. But I'm glad that they've, it, it, they have the television show just because those are the characters that now I see when I, when I read the books. You know, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But other times I absolutely... Um, I, I don't like it. You know, like I won't read like a, uh, I try not to see a lot of like historical classics that I love, like A Tale of Two Cities, because I already have it in my head what those characters look like. I know that sounds strange. Yeah, no, That's I know. why I didn't see Les Miserables, because when I had read that book, I, I already had, yeah. I knew what Fantine looked like. I did not want to, um, I didn't see, see the book. And uh, it, it's just interesting because to me, you know, Hugh Jackman or whatever, they're not those characters for me. You know, they're not the way they're described in the book. And they're, for me, it's, it's just too pop. It's just too pop culture. So I, I tend not to, to see movies like that. I know that people will disagree with me and think I'm nuts, but that's, that's I, I, like, I don't want to, I don't want to destroy that magic. I agree with you. I felt the same way uh, when I read, when I saw those Jane Austen movies that they did, uh, and I had this idea about what these characters look like and how they behaved, and and I get into those actors, those t- little twicks and tweets they have that they do that when they're acting that's yeah. sort of irritating. When like Jane Austen, when we, this character to behave that way and or to toss her head to the side like that, I said, I hate this. Stop it! Stop it! You're reading my book. <laughs> the only um, one I would say, um, like Colin Dexter, I love the Morse. And and John Thaw was Morse for me, and I love the new Endeavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think secondly f- for me too was uh, Sherlock Holmes. I thought Jeremy Brett was just a wonderful Sherlock Holmes. But I have to say the new Sherlock, I am totally enamored with, and I like the more contemporary feel. But still, Jeremy Brett in my mind will always be Sherlock Holmes. I just think he did a fabulous job um, before he passed away. Was it on the uh, BBC you know, America series? No. Which one are you talking about? No. Uh, no, well, yeah, the BBC, the, it's Sherlock. Yeah. Have you seen that yeah. with with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah. that. Oh, I just I just haven't gotten into totally... to really following it much. You know, it's so much to watch on TV. <laughs> I saw a couple he's of episodes a, in it. <laughs> he's such a good actor yeah. because you know he's not. I would not say he's the quintessential handsome leading yeah. man. Yeah, well, Sherlock and wasn't I think supposed to be that. Was yeah. no, but I think with with Benedict, he's his looks are so different yeah. that he's so compelling to watch, and his acting is superb. Have you seen Have you yeah. seen Elementary, the, the the CBS show? See, I that that left me cold. Yeah, yeah. that left me cold. Yeah. I I watched a couple episodes. I said, no, this isn't. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> but. Well, my next book is one that's a fa- it's a good summer read. It's a again, it's not a um, I wouldn't say it's a it's a thin novel. It's by Sue Monk Kidd, and it's called The Invention of Wings. It's her newest book. Uh, she was the author that wrote um, The Secret Life of Bees, oh, yeah. which um, that came out years ago, and I think The Mermaid's Chair. She's written several, but this one appealed to me, and I don't normally read. You know, when I look at uh, popular books at the library, I usually don't always go for like the you know New York Times bestseller list. I, I just wait and see what the reviews are. But I picked this one up because it was there, and I was really glad I did. This one actually, I would say, is based on a true story. And the invention of wings um, happens in 
the, you know, the 1800s uh, in the South in Charleston. And Sarah Grimke and her sister Angelina uh, grew up in this on this plantation. They uh, her father was a judge, uh, you know, very you know wealthy plantation owner. And for her 11th birthday, she it was customary in the South to be given your own slave. So she was given um, Hetty, or they call, her mother called her Handful because she was a handful. And what's interesting about this particular book is that it juxtaposes uh, Handful's life with Sarah's life because Sarah was so appalled at getting a gift of another human being for her birthday. She refused it. She refused to have Hetty. But the, her and Hetty have this, um, I would say, cautious friendship. But Sarah teaches her her slave, Hetty, um, to read and write. And they get punished for it. But I love the, I love the fact that um, Sarah and Angelina actually be, uh, Sarah and Angelina became Quakers and when they became adults and she was very instrumental in um, the abolitionist movement and also uh, women's rights. She was, a, she and her sister were, suffrag- were suffragettes and they wrote, um, Angelina and her husband wrote American Slavery as it is and that basically influenced Harriet Beecher Stowe Harriet Beecher Stowe, I can't talk today, sorry everyone, um, for Uncle Tom's Cabin. So Sarah never married, Uh, Angelina did, but it also has wonderful, wonderful passages, very well-written passages about the relationship with Handful and her mother. And her mother, you know, because it it does go into slavery and uh, on that plantation and, you know, uh, basically the social mores at the time how you treated um, slavery, uh, the slaves, which as we all know, um, you know, is, could be hideous in how they dealt with it. But her mother makes this quilt, a story quilt. And if, for anybody that has seen the, uh, the, the Guise Benz quilts, they're absolutely beautiful. Or the antebellum uh, Baltimore album quilts. Well, Handful's mother, Charlotte, teaches her how to make this story quilt. It's basically a story of their life going back um, and from uh, Handful's grandmother in Africa and how the, the, the title of the book, The Invention of Wings, is basically that we all have wings, that in Africa, um, you know, people could fly. And Handful's mother tells her that her shoulder blades is basically what's all that's left of your wings, so one day you'll get them back. So it's beautiful. It's, I think it's very well written. Um, I don't think it's all that sympathetic in some, t- in some area, uh, uh, in some passages. It might, people might uh, be like, wow, they actually did that to other human beings. And I think we all, we can't forget. We, we need to think about, yes, that is what, is what happened. Mm-hmm. So um, I like the way that it basically transverses, you know, Handful's life and how she deals with Sarah and it deals with, you know, um, Sarah's life and her, um, her basically path into being an abolitionist and uh, fighting for, um, you know, slavery and for women's rights. And, you know, she, her father told her once because out of all her family, Sarah was pretty bright. And her father said, had you only been a boy, 
you would have made a, a wonderful jurist. Mm. And so, but she, she couldn't do, at that time, you know, women weren't really allowed to study law and stuff. Um, and so Sarah's brother ended up becoming an attorney, uh, a lawyer, but not Sarah. So Sarah basically parlayed her intelligence into, uh, you know, working for the common good. So uh, it's, it's a good book, The Invention of Wings. I, I, I liked it. It was a, it was, um, it, it was very captivating. Mm-hmm. You know, you stayed, the characters were very well written, very strong. And I think having that uh, basis of truth, you know, with Sarah and Angelina's character being historical uh, characters, it was a good piece of historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, back to the life side of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Just give me a reputation. <laughs> no, that sounds interesting, though. Um, but my book isn't um, that heavy. It's another series of books, uh, books uh, written by Kim Harrison. Um, and uh, it's called The Hollow Series. It's based on um, this character, uh, Rachel Morgan. Um, so it's an urban fantasy kind of thing. She's supposed to be a witch. And uh, it's, they create this kind of alternative history where there's some worldwide pandemic which caused uh, some genetically modified tomatoes uh, to uh, to lead to the death of uh, a large portion of the uh, of the world po- human population, and then uh, as a result, they, a lot of all people who did weren't affected by it come to find out they were witches, werewolves, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, characters um, that we didn't know existed at the time. Uh, and you say I have I have heavy. <laughs> Well, it's, it's a fantasy. It's not real. <laughs> but it's, it's a series of books. I think she has like maybe 13 books um, in the series. And it just follows this witch and, and uh, throughout uh, some of the issues that she's involved with. She has a vampire uh, roommate. It's a female roommate who sort of loves her, but, you know, Rachel doesn't swing that way. <laughs> And Rachel's up also uh, works with her. Both of them are like bounty hunter kind of the characters, um, and they work with um, uh, to uh, track down the alternate people, the uh, the other uh, uh, characters, the witches and warlocks, and and so on. Make sure they stay in line, and they get paid very well for it. Um, and um, but it's based in Cincinnati, so that's another place that I've been, and sort of, I like I like to be based on something that I'm familiar with. So um, it's cute. The character, the, the author actually is Kim Harrison, but her that's just her pen name. Her name is Dawn uh, Cook, and she grew up in the Midwest, so that's the reason why the books are centered in Cincinnati. But they're really good. They're really fast reads. I think they're very good summaries. Uh, you can get through them in, in no time. But if you're not into fantasy, which I am now, and I don't know how I got into that, but and I'm but I'm gradually falling out of it. I'm sort of tired of it. Um, I think because everybody else has caught on to it. <laughs> this one they have not made a movie out of. Okay, and this was funny. I read all these things long before they became. Oh, everybody's into them. Um, actually, I read them. Um, almost as soon as some of them came out, uh, and they weren't really popular. Um, I think something happened where 
uh, um, just flipped the page where people start really getting into this stuff. So there's more authors that came along. But um, I've always sort of liked that alternate universe kind of thing where uh, magical things can happen. Um, and I like them to be way out there. I don't like them to be, oh, well, this is real. And, um, um, you know, like some of the, the uh, sci-fi stuff, I think, is just really crazy. You know, it's like um, you try to base reality into this stuff and they have characters that it's just, just I just cannot get into the sci-fi like that. I, I like it to be fantastical, really, really, really way out of the way fa fantasy things, with things we know that don't exist. Um, and I think that was in sci-fi. There's some real stuff that they could actually incorporate into them, but they don't. You know, like uh, the spaceships and all that other stuff. Um, if you're going to do it, let's do it right. You know, <laughs> let's make it so that, you know, I don't like the vaporizing into space and stuff like that. And I'm on my kick about sci-fi and the reason why I don't like it. I should probably let that alone because <laughs> uh, that's not one of my summer reads, obviously. <laughs> Well, you know what always interested me, like, you know, for instance, like Star Trek, is how many things actually, the, the conceptual thing that um, Gene Roddenberry had, and look how many things actually have come true. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah. think it's very fascinating. Yeah, you know, yeah. That. I just sort of like um, when, when you're watching war movies and you're looking at, you were in a submarine and you're going, you can't stand up. That, that guy's six foot tall. He couldn't stand up in a submarine. That kind of stuff bothers me. You know what I said? Well, I agree. <laughs> Accuracy to me is very important. Uh, oh, I agree. That's why medical shows and I don't get along. Yeah, I like, you yeah. know, I like accuracy. Yeah, and they were like, this know. guy can't sit, uh, send this, uh, uh, this torpedo out without all these codes. It's, all, it's a number of steps you have to go through. I used to work um, in, uh, in that industry where you, uh, government contract industry, where you actually develop those uh, submarine fire control system so I know the process and the protocol so I don't like watching anything like that because it'll just distract me I forget about the story and go like why don't they do this right <laughs> they make all this money off these movies all you gotta do is just ask someone you know <laughs> they do it just to have that name on the credit you know? <laughs> I know the other thing that with books that disturb me if they're doing a period you know if they're doing a set period of time and then they throw in a wrench that you know maybe happened they didn't get their years straight so if they're dealing say for instance with you know the late 1800s and they talk about the boy scouts excuse me the boy scouts weren't even you know i think it was what 1914 yeah, or something yeah it's it's inaccuracies like that that drive me up a lot yeah, you, you know, do your research but even shakespeare you know? has stuff that was out of time what he well, yeah that's true it's, it's like, people do that they just miss the fact that okay they shouldn't be doing this um, during this time, I, I remember. Um, I think my sister wrote a paper about that anachronisms in Shakespeare. Oh, she did. Yeah, yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, for for high oh, school. I would have liked <laughs> to have seen that. Yeah. No, that's actually. Great. Yeah. I mean, actually, you do online. It's probably a million people that have done it. But I remember I was in the high school. Yeah. I was. She was in high school. I was in elementary school, and she's writing that like. Really? You mean to say they didn't have it right? You know, I always thought that Shakespeare was just like the Bible almost in terms of fiction. <laughs> Yeah, because that's the way they treat it in school. You know, like you gotta read Shakespeare. I'm like this guy didn't know what he was writing about. <laughs> no, they make mistakes. They're human. Yeah. Well, my next book is for the creatives out there that need um, a kick in the pants or 
uh, need some, you know, if they're in a creative block, sometimes summers, you know, summer is a time where, you know, you get going on with family stuff and it's nice weather. And, you know, sometimes people just feel like they've, they've hit a wall. Um, I've certainly been there. And Austin Cleon is an artist from, he's a graphic designer and artist from Austin, Texas. And I think it was a couple of years ago, he came out with a book. There's just this little book called Steal Like an Artist. It was, it was a, it was a riot. I went out and I got that. And basically it was just what Picasso said. Uh, Picasso said, you know, uh, uh, what did he say? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I need coffee. Um, He he said something like a good artist borrow and great artist steal. Mm. Yeah, there, my brain. I just went into overload there. (laughs) But uh, you know, he also said um, uh, every child is an artist, and the problem. This is one of my favorites. I think he said, uh, yeah, every child is an artist. The problem is staying an artist when you grow up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that is true. So many people I know when I'm out drawing or something, people will always say, you know, I can't draw a straight line or you know, I don't know how to uh, draw, but basically it's, it's just doing it. And that's what uh, Austin Cleon did. He said, basically, you know, you need to take all those ideas out there with his book, um, Steal Like an Artist, was to take all those ideas and make it, um, steal them to influence your work, not to be derivative, but take those ideas and enhance your own work. Well, he came out with another one called Show Your Work, and that's the one I'm talking about mm-hmm. right now. Uh, Austin Cleon, not that people haven't done it before, but he's pretty known for his newspaper blackout poems. So basically he takes a, um, he takes a, uh, a newspaper and he'll just take a marker and he'll basically create almost like this poem, leaving certain words intact and blacking out all around those words. And if you go to his website, Austin Cleon, his last name is spelled K-L-E-O-N, you can see his work there, and he's got a very active blog, so you can get a lot of ideas from his blog. But show your work I liked because, you know, that's the thing is I think artists, any type of creative, whether you're a writer or visual artist, performance artist, you're always scared to show your work. And he kind of gives you 10, uh, I wouldn't say it's a manifesto, but he gives you, uh, you know, 10 talking points on how to get your work out there and get through that reticence about showing your work. And so it's a great little book. He uses a lot of uh, uh, like infographics for his books. And it's just a real quick, quick read. But if you know someone that's creative and, you know, they're just uh, in a lull, this is a great book to give them. There's a Kindle version. Uh, there's a, a soft cover version. So I like it. Show your work. I've been reading that this, this, uh, this summer because my blog is just so... It's, I got to get back onto it, you know, and, and he's right. You got to show your work. There's no sense creating work if you don't show it and get it out there. Mm. So, uh, well, you know, I'm not an artist. <laughs> well, everyone says that, but you know, I agree with Picasso. You know, I think everybody is an artist. It's just remembering how to stay an artist when you get older. I, you know? I just and, want things to be done right. And sometimes there's not a right. I know that, but I, 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 I destroy it. I go, okay, this isn't right. I toss it away. You know, I, I wanted to be exactly the way I wanted to be, but I don't know how to get it to be that way. 
So, but see, yeah. that's practice. Yeah. You know, when I was in art school, I had a fabulous professor that said, you know, you have to paint 500 paintings before you'll ever paint a good painting. Mm-hmm. Not a great painting, just a good painting. But I think what he more or less meant was that you have to put mileage on the brush. It's the same way if you're writing. You have to put mileage on the pencil. You know, um, it, you have to do a lot of junk, a lot of crap before you can get through the kernel of of goodness to, to create something that you feel is good. And it just takes a lot of practice. Yeah. You know, I don't even like to write. Um, see my handwriting. It looks so bad. <laughs> I read mean, a type. You have a type. You, know, you have an iPad. How many iPads do you have? Type on your iPad, open up pages and, and work girl. Just work, do it. Yeah, but you know, just I do don't, it. I, I not creative. I can't write like that. It'll take me longer to write it on a computer because I, it's something about writing from the pen to the paper that is just, I'm more creative that way. I used to even do my papers in school. I'd write it down on paper and then type it up. Well, you know, J.K. Rowling, uh, Rowling, excuse me, um, she wrote, I think, her first draft of Harry Potter on a legal pad and a pen. And there is something, mm-hmm. just writing all those pages. Well, Julia Cameron, who years ago came out with the book, The Artist Way. She oh, believed I have that, that book. Yeah. Yeah. She believed yeah. that in order to get through that junk, mm-hmm. that our mind just gets filled up with junk. And in order to get through that, to access our right brain and our creative um, brain, she recommended doing morning pages, you know, just basically stream of consciousness thinking conscious thinking I can't I definitely can't talk today um but you know you get a legal pad you get a pen and you just start writing yeah it it doesn't you know like my shoe hurts or you know boy today is going to be so boring but you write and you write and you write and you write till you get that junk out and then you can start um working on being creative and a lot a lot of people feel that works yeah I I got a copy of that book was given to me this guy I met at a coffee shop we should just talk to each other whenever we were at the coffee shop. I forgot his name. He probably don't remember mine either. But he, he was tell, I said the same thing to him. I'm not, an art, I'm not artistic. I'm just, you know, I'm very, you know, I, I just don't have any artistic abilities. Oh, everybody does. So I, he started telling me about the book. And then I was getting ready to move up north, up here, where I live now. Uh, and uh, he said, before you leave, I got something for you. And he gave me the book. And I read it. Aww. And I was like, wow, this is, I could do, I could do something with this. I could really, I think, I think this will help me. But I never did get, get around to even try it. <laughs> well, you know, I think what's so interesting is that I, I would consider myself primarily a right brain person. Mm-hmm. I think creatively a lot. Um, um, well, no, I, what, yes. But the thing is, is, Left brain people, the more supposedly analytical people, I'm always saying I'm terrible in math. Oh, I'm, I'm really, you know, I can't do that. I'm really bad in math. But, you know, when I took a math class, I did well. I just think we, we, we set up our own blocks. We tell each other that or we tell ourselves that we're not creative because it basically is a form of procrastination. That means that, you know, if I tell myself I'm not good in math and I won't have to do math, yeah. if I tell myself... I'm not creative, then I don't have to do anything creative and nobody expects anything of me. So if I do really crappy work, I've already told them I'm not good at math. I've already yeah. told somebody I'm not creative so they can't expect. I think but I have a very self-defeating. I have a, a very self-defeating. I have a critical eye. I can see art. I can recognize and understand it. 
I just can't do it. I just can't get it the way I want it to be because of my, I, I think I'm too critical. Yeah, you are. Yeah, We're all yeah, critical. Yeah. So. I, got, I got that a lot. My professors used to yeah. say, you know, Suze, you're so hard on yourself. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. you're right. You have a bar that you want to achieve to. And, and you're not going to do it first, overnight. It well, no. Time. And if your first yeah. efforts don't succeed, you, yeah, you just cascade yourself like oh, terrible. So I think that's, but I, I, I think that's the reason why I was, I'm good at math is because when I did it, I just concentrated on it. And I was successful that first time. And then I expected that kind of success each time. The effort I put into it, I got out. And it's the same with art. I just haven't put any effort in it because I keep saying, no, I can't do it. This is hard. This isn't me. And you got to reinvent yourself, I guess. Well, you know, Vince, Vincent Van Gogh is a perfect example. I always like to consider him the artist artist because when he started with art and you look at his earlier drawings they're not that good they really aren't the perspective is off um, the angles are off but you know by sheer will and by sheer practice by getting out every day to do it regardless Mm -hmm. and you know as we all know he made no money he was penniless basically um, his brother Teo uh, supported him he made some he he made some fabulous, wonderful, gorgeous paintings and drawings. And you can, what I love about Van Gogh's work is you can see the progression of expertise. You know how he starts; it's not very good, and he you know he gets better and better and better. It's just a, a wonderful exercise for people that don't think they're creative to go and look at Van Gogh's work when, from the beginning. You know, and it, actually with any person's work except Picasso. I mean, that guy came out mm-hmm. from Cronus's head perfectly formed. <laughs> you know, and some people are like that, like Mozart. But, you know, the vast majority of artists aren't like that. And you see, you know, different periods of their work and, you know, how, um, you know, they start off a little reticent or a little hesitant and then they get better and their work gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So um, I think it's just about the doing. It's about anything. You know, Neil Gaiman said that, you know, uh, when he did a commencement address a few years ago, you know, just do good art. And that's for writing or anything. You're always going to have crap. I mean, Charles Dickens used to throw away complete, you know, uh, novels because he hated them. So, I mean, we Mm -hmm. all do bad stuff, you know. Will any of us achieve greatness? Only, you know, only history knows. All right. So back to the fantasy. (laughs) Another okay. fantasy uh, series that I like. That sounds like an Eminem rap. Back to the fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's good. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. My next book is Charlene Harris. Uh, it's a Sookie Sackhouse series, you know, based on the True Blood series. Um, again, another TV show that spun off from these books. Uh, this, uh, urban fantasies are very, very popular not lately. Um, but it's based on Suzuki Sackhouse. She's a fictional character and protagonist of uh, Charlene Harris's Southern uh, Vampire Mystery uh, book series. Um, Suki's played by an, on, in True Blood by the Anna Paquin character. Um, but fortunately, the books are totally different from True Blood. You can read that and not even... They have some of the same characters, but, but basically um, the names are the same. The characters are sort of totally different. Only a few remain who they are. And the story diverges. It's, the story's not even the same. Um, and I think that's the reason why 
this is the last uh, a, a season, and thank goodness, because it's really, really turned. Uh, I don't want to say they, they jumped the shark. It's just that the storyline is just dead and drab. Um, but the series is pretty good. I, I, they, she actually ended the series too. Uh, this year, she came out with the last book. Um, but it's pretty much dealing with a Suki who's a clairvoyant. And um, I guess now a fairy, um, or whatever, in, in um, the True Blood series. But basically, she was a clairvoyant. She went through town. She was the oddball out because she could actually read their thoughts, hear their thoughts. Uh, and people always thought she was weird because she, when she was younger, she would answer them as if they talked to them. And for If you're thinking something and she replies as if you said something, uh, they look at her like she's crazy. But um, I thought the series was going to be about that, how she gets along with people and how she, how she uses that ability. And it pretty much was. And, and, and gradually became much bigger with werewolf fighting and infighting among vampires and vampire politics and all that other kind of stuff. But it, what I really like about it, it was it felt homey. I'm from the Mid-South and it's, it's based in um, Louisiana, but it has the same feel. And I think it's because the author is from the same part of uh, the Mid-South. I'm from, she's from um, Mississippi and now lives in Arkansas right near uh, where I used to live in in Tennessee, um, and I just feel this southern flow there, and it's really what it was um, the first couple of seasons of the TV show. It had the same kind of flavor. Um, it just felt um, authentic um, on top of the fantasy stuff that was going on, um, but it's the the books sort of just ran out of steam. They really. You know, it's nothing else. I was reading them just to, okay, it's a new one out and see what happens, you know. and uh, It was time for it to end, and was, as well as the TV series. Um, but I was just reading the first, I think the first six of them, five to six of them, and then it goes downhill after that. <laughs> but I read, I read the last one also. I, I like to finish these series. And... Uh, yeah. So you always read all of the series if you can? I try to. I don't know. It's just sort of like I started it. And I'm not going to do it with the Game of Thrones, though. I told you that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it just bothered me. I just, it just was just talking just to be talking. Um, and characters interacting and not moving forward. And going like, you better tie this up. And he hasn't tied it up, you know. And he has one more book to do, right? And... um. That book has to do a lot of work. Um, also, I, what I don't like about Game of Thrones, back on the Game of Thrones and what I don't like, <laughs> is he makes people awful. Awful, awful, awful. And a lot of the women are really, really bad and mean and nasty. Um, even the character that uh, Jon Snow's girlfriend, that you know, she, she's so scruffy and mean for no reason at all. I'm like, then she's, oh, she's lovey-dovey. I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. I wonder if that's the, how he sees women. Women are just so either crazy, I'm going to kill you and your kids, and um, or I'm going to use my sexuality to get everything that I want. And, um, 
they're just pretty one-dimensional. <laughs> I was just going to say they're very one-dimensional. Yeah. 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 They, no, they are. And, they, and, they, I, and I, I totally I think that's what ticked me off about the book. I said, I can't read this anymore. I can't. I, I was trying to listen to it, too, uh, when I'm in my car, just to get through with it. And I, I couldn't even listen to it. I said, this is too much. And another thing about the uh, audio book, the guy is, uh, the, is pretty good that does the audio stuff, but he sort of gets the women's voice. They sound like they have, you know how, um, say the scullery maid would talk, you know, this kind of nasally, kind of crazy sound to her voice. He had the princesses talking like that after a while. I'm like, that's not the way it should be. If they're supposed to be cultured and she's a princess, why would she talk like that? I think he sort of fell into it. All the women were sounding like that after a while. And I hadn't noticed it in the beginning. I need to go back and listen to the first couple of audio, audio books and see Oh, I, if I just suddenly became hypercritical of the story because I just didn't like the female characters. Um, I don't know. But uh, are you listening to the audio book? I'm listening to the audiobooks, correct. Yeah. Yes. Have you heard, have you noticed that, the female voice? Not, n- no, not, well, he, his, he tries, the narrator tries to, yeah, yeah. create different. Different voices, um, yeah. Voices, yeah. yeah. Kind of like a Jim Dale, but Jim Dale's far, I think, more successful at it. Yeah. Question. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, maybe just me being just overly critical of Game of Thrones. Or, I'm just very disappointed. <laughs> I can sense that. <laughs> Okay. Well, my next book um, I read for my book club, and actually, I I I was a little reluctant. I'm thinking, oh, all right, um, you know, it's called uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. And actually, I was very, I I thought it was very very interesting. Um, he did an exhaustive study, basically. Um, researching neuroscience and psychology to basically find out why we have habits in our life and why sometimes they control us, you know, in in compulsive behavior like gambling or addictions and why some of our habits, we need them. But he also did it in an interesting way about organizational habits, for instance, like Target. I was so blown away by his chapter on Target, how Target, basically, the marketers in Target wanted to identify uh, pregnant women because they felt that if they could get a woman uh, to shop at Target, like in her third trimester, then, you know, they could basically own <laughs> the her, you know, after the baby for, uh, you know, uh, diapers and, you know, buying clothing and, you know, you name it. So this marketer, I think his name is Andrew Pohl, I read it about a month ago, so sometimes I'm a little hazy, but um, he worked at Target and he finally figured out some markers, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and what they did is I think they identified like 25 things that women would buy um, if they were pregnant. So, you know, prenatal vitamins, this, and they compiled this list and they started sending them out coupons. And so basically, you know, it was... It's amazing the data collection and how some of these companies use that, which, you know, we all know they're data miners out there, but how they use it and we don't even realize it. And he also did a organizational study on Alcoa. 
and how when the Alcoa was losing a lot of money and when the CEO came in, this Charles O'Neill, he basically didn't deal with any of that. He said, we're going to become the number one um, safety, you know, we're going to have a number one safety record in this company. And he focused totally on safety. Well, what that did is it created new habits in these people where they took more of an ownership, you know. Um, so everybody was listened to. He said, here's my email. I want you, you know, if, if a piece of equipment's not safe, I want you to let me know. And they basically changed the whole corporation uh, through that safety model. But, you know, they also had, you know, about gambling, why some people gamble and they had, um, you know, why we form habits. So basically what we do <clears throat> and, you know, in a, in a basic, uh, a habit is there has to be, uh, you know, a cue and a routine and then a reward. So, you know, you have some type of cue, like, you know, uh, if you want to eat a piece of chocolate, maybe you've had that cup of coffee, that's your cue because you always have the chocolate after your coffee or say it is a cigarette. So, you know, you have the routine, which you light up the cigarette, you don't even think about it because it's a habit. And your reward is that, you know, either you're on a sugar high or a nicotine high. And so he also has, at the end of the book, he tells you, he discusses, um, and, and I think a very sensible way on how to change habits, you know, because of course we have bad habits, we have good habits and we have a brain function called chunking that is habitual. Like for instance, you know, when we first drive somewhere like down your driveway, well, your brain is only capable of having so much information and handling that. So we form almost like an, a subconscious habit when we do things. So, you know, after you do it a couple of times, you know where the curb is, you know, you know how you have to angle the steering wheel getting down your driveway and it becomes a habit. It, it was just, I think, a very interesting book on a lot. They, he talked about Starbucks, all, all these, all these um, different organizations, even Tony Dungy, how he instilled habits in the NFL and basically made a Super Bowl team. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're, if you're trying to break a habit or you want to understand why uh, you do have habits, this is actually a really good book to read. I, I, I liked it. it was, there were mixed reviews in my book club. Some people absolutely didn't like it. Other people did. But I did think it was very interesting. You know, why we do what we do. It, it basically, it's called The Power of Habit, Why We Do What we do in life and business. And I think any type of uh, insight to the psychology of how and why we do things is interesting. So wow. I, I would, I would recommend that it's not a hard read. He uses a lot of case studies, you know, and some people like that, some people don't, but I do like uh, case studies. So um, yeah, it was interesting. Wow. This sounds like my MBA program. <laughs> light reading there <laughs> yeah no it is though he I think he does a good job yeah. with um tackling I think he does a good job of tackling the um habit theory with a lot of different case studies yeah. you know and what we talked about is that like this one case study he did is this man was a habitual sleepwalker and one night he was out I don't know, camping or something with his wife and he woke up um, and he bludgeoned her to death thinking that she was an intruder. Of course, he was distraught and he ended up getting off because the lawyer could prove that he was a habitual sleepwalker. On the other uh, end of the spectrum, this woman was a habitual gambler and she stopped gambling for a while and she, 
Harris found out she wasn't gambling, so they were sending her um, all these emails about coming out to Las Vegas. She'd have the, you know, a great suite to, you know, they plied her with food and drink and gave her money to, to gamble. And she gambled like over $500,000. And, wow. you know, so, to, but she didn't get off on it. So how, you know, my theory was, well, how is a murderer being able to get off on a subconscious behavior when I think, you know, Hertz is subconscious as well. I mean, they're giving her all the triggers, you know, sending her, um, a, you know, free weeks in Las Vegas. Uh, so it was just interesting how those two things played out. But I, I think it's an interesting book, a, a nonfiction book, if you're looking for a nonfiction book to read in the summer. I liked it. So The Power of Habit. Yeah, it's sort of like me trying to not drink coffee. <clears throat> now I'm drinking just, <laughs> you know, green tea, but it's warm. It's the same process you go through, you know, but it's not the same reward, unfortunately. No, no, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I like that kind of stuff. I think I want to read that one. Yeah, that was good, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm into my book club, too. It's my community I live in. Uh, it's a book a club. And so far, we've read um, John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, which is also a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you and your movie. I know. I don't know how it's just about everything on my list is turned into a movie or a TV show or something. But um, it's a kid book. I'm sorry. Um, I, it, I did not dislike it. But uh, it's about this 16-year-old girl who has cancer. And she jo- she goes to support group and meets this guy named Augustus Walters, who's an ex-basketball player. And we come to find out he was an amputee. He had uh, bone cancer um, and um, my only problem with the book uh, well, well they become lovers of course they fall in love and everything um, my only problem with the book is that they dealt with the love affair and they didn't get really much into the cancer part of it but I don't know it's just a kids book so maybe they don't want to get into all that stuff and the author actually works uh, has worked with uh, kids like this and he has some insight to it and uh, this is like a six book and they're all young adult books I think young adults are old enough to know about the technical stuff the, the medical stuff that's going on with these people not just that oh she's tired oh just she, she needs oxygen oh he's suddenly going downhill they could have dealt with more of what they really have to go through the emotional up and downs um with their family, they sort of threw that in there a little bit. Um, I just thought it was a, it would have been a better character study if they got more into um, what this boy went through when he was amputated and lost his leg. Uh, we just get him there. We don't even get any backstory, and it's sort of like uh, tidbits. And then eventually, we find out that he had his leg uh, amputated. We, we didn't even know what kind of cancer he had. Um, and then we get some tidbits. Always oh, play basketball. Um, I think his story would have been more interesting than her story, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. And I just felt it was just so glossy, so superficial. But it's for young adults, and I'm not a young adult. I'm an, I'm an old adult. So, um, and, and it was it's, it to me, it felt as if he was writing it as a screenplay for young little teenage girls to go and cry about this love affair that comes to an end, you know. Um, it wasn't Romeo and Juliet. Somebody, some people tried to talk, say that. Uh, 
in some of the reviews. Um, and in, in my, even in that book club, everybody liked it a hell of a lot more than I did. Um, there was a couple of women that felt, oh, it was okay. I surprised that I didn't hate it um, because uh, normally I, I hate all young adult books, you know. <laughs> um, but I just felt it could have been more. It could have been something that he says he only writes for young adults. That's fine. But I think young adults could have gotten more out of this. He could have added some more meat to it. It was just very fluffy. Mm. And he's the kind of writer that if I wrote and it was like that, I would be very unhappy. That's the reason why I can't write. <laughs> I can't. Because I like, it's, it's got to be more than just some love affair. This kid's had cancer. This is serious crap. This is, oh, well, I lost him. You know, maybe I'm going to die too from cancer. You know, it, it just was so. <laughs> So, to say it was just so weak. Well, you know, that, and, and I think, you know, that's almost, um, again, I hate to say this, but it can be a gimmick with some authors is that they yeah. say, okay, you know, I'm going to tackle, you know, cancer and they can make it very maudlin. And that bothers me, you know, treat it realistically, you know, with realistic uh, teenage emotions, yeah, you know, and yeah. I mean, if you think about some of these kind of sappy books, like, you know, the bridges of Madison County mm -hmm. and, you know, and they, they I think they're really, I hate to say it, but they're like chiclet, you know, because they it's, know that we're going to cry. It's a screenplay. It's right. Yeah. They, they're targeting to Hollywood, yeah. you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's a real gimmick. And I, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, plots like that need to be a little more meatier, meaty, a little more humane and more realistic, you know? And But, you know, there are people who just love to cry. And I'm not one of those. I don't like to I'm not one of them. Oh, that movie made me cry. I love it. And then the, the lady that led our reading group, she said that, oh, girl, I, I read it again and I cried. I said, you cried? <laughs> this book did not make me cry. And I didn't say it at first until one other lady said, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me because I didn't cry. I didn't either. It did not make me cry. You know, and, and, and I hate that. I don't want to go to a movie or read a book just to cry. You got to take me on. If I'm going to cry, you better take me on a trip. fantastic journey. You know? And this I was, have to say that I, ha I don't even remember the last book that made me cry. Um, that's a movie that. that made me cry but the last movie yeah. that made me cry was Saving Private Ryan at the oh, very um, end I didn't saw but I got teary eyed because I that was I think Steven Spielberg did such a great job bringing us through this whole adventure and you know and, and granted it was based you know in, in some sort of fiction but still it was it was the concept of World War II and you know you, I don't remember that, of course. Most of us don't remember that. But what those kids went through when they landed on Normandy, oh, my God. You know, mm -hmm. I think um, I think the real, I think it was a very realistic depiction. And it made me very respectful for everybody that had to go over there and, and risk their lives and, you know, give their lives up for that. So I don't know. At that one, I think I got a little teary-eyed at the end of that. But I, I don't – movies usually don't make me cry, Um I, because, you know, the whole time if I'm watching a movie, I feel sometimes if they're trying to make it too maudlin or sad, I'm trying to think, okay, they're playing oh, with no. my emotion. I mean, you can see oh, the no. music's coming up. It's going, you know, real, oh, no. you know, real uh, sentimentally sweet. And I, I don't know. That just turns me off because they're forcing you to cry. They want you to have emotion. It's, it's basically they're manipulating us. And that's what bothers me. So... I don't like being manipulated into cry. Yeah, I don't like to be yeah. manipulated into yeah. cry either. Um, I can't remember the name of the movie. 
but it made me bawl. It was about Anton Fisher at the end when he meets his family, you know, and how open the family, and, and they, 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 they make this big meal because he said that what he, his fantasy was, that he, he would have his family and they would have pancakes and all these different kinds of food, and the family just did that for him. It just made me cry like a baby. <laughs> I was just, I don't know, it just came out of nowhere. I just thought, I was like, oh my God, how can I be crying over something like this? And I just could not stop crying. I'm like, oh my God. You know, because I, I was really identifying with that character the whole way through. And I was so angry at how people treated him and all the awful things that happened to him in the foster care system. And then once he found out what his family was and he met his mother and realized his mother was awful and, and that um, this was his story. And, you know, what's really yeah. great about the story was that this boy worked on a Hollywood uh, uh, set uh, uh, lot. I guess he was like a security guard or something. And he told someone, he kept telling people he wrote he has a screenplay and he, he, he really wanted somebody. And somebody actually listened to him and they read it and went, this is fantastic. And um, they made a movie. Now, this movie was worth seeing. It was just really... Yeah. It was really, really um, a great um, character study. And you see these people and how they react and, and how they can shape your life and your, your whole feeling of who you are. Your, self, uh, your self-awareness and your well-being is all tied into this. And uh, this Washington was just like this counselor trying to help him you know, get some bearings because they were getting ready to kick him out of the military, I think, maybe. You know? wow. um, and it was just really, really a good book. That, mo- that movie made me cry. So we probably should wrap it up, right? Yeah, I'm just, I have a, just a few more and um, I'm just going to, I'm not going to go into it too, into too much detail, but um, my other recommendations are anything, anything, anything by Joe Nesbo. He is a Norwegian writer. Um, I love his Harry Hola series. Um, they have oh quite a few books, uh, probably maybe nine, ten books, mm-hmm. and his character is just down and out. He's um, he's uh, in the Oslo um, police department, but he's a smoker. He's a drinker. He's like the anti-detective, you know, <laughs> hero. So, but he's so likable. I absolutely love Harry Hola. So anything by. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Yo Nesbo or Joe Nesbo, but it's spelled J-O and then N-E-S-B-O. It'll be in our show notes, but I highly recommend uh, Harry Hola. Yeah. And uh, my friend Jay Suchlin got me in Arizona, got me onto him. And then the other two um, I'm reading right now, I just finished The Angels Game by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, and he is a Spanish writer beautiful lyrical writing Mm -hmm. i'm that is basically the prequel to the shadow of the wind and they take place in barcelona and talk about an armchair traveler the way that he describes barcelona yeah i feel like i'm there oh yes beautifully beautifully written it's kind of i would say a, a, a dark i mean harry hola harry hola um uh novels are quite dark but this one is a gothic dark i would think and then if you're into poems, I just um, got Stay Illusion by Lucy Brock Burrito, and that is just absolutely exquisite. Highly recommend it. Just got the uh, National Book Award. It was a National Book Award finalist. So beautifully written poems. And that's all for me. Yeah, I agree with The Angels Game. I love that book. That is a beautiful writer. Um, and my 
uh, Redwood Book Club reads um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette uh, by Maria Sample. Um, the Faith Club, a Muslim, a Christian, a Jew. There's three women searching for understanding. Uh, Light Between Oceans uh, by M.L. Stedman. Death Comes to Pepperly uh, by P.D. James. Uh, Masterpiece Mystery. Um, uh, we're going to do that. Um, there, I guess there's going to be... Um, we're going to read uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and actually watch the Masterpiece Mystery a performance of it um, uh, on PBS. And then our final book is A Long Way Down. Now, I haven't read, uh, I'm just starting on the Faith Club, so I can't really give you an opinion about it. But Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Simple. Uh, I didn't particularly care for that one, but um, <laughs> I missed uh, the, cl the club meeting for that one anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but the rest of them sounds interesting. The Faith Club is really, really good. These women tried to, after 9 11, a Muslim, a Christian, a Jew, get together and they want to write some stories for children um, about the different faiths. It was, you know, the, the, the regular, the Christian stories about the baby and the manger and all that good stuff and the Jewish stories too um, and Muslim stories. And they tried to understand and explain to their children what's going on in the world and why these people have issues with each other. And it's just, it's interesting. Um, I'm not a very religious person, but I, I really like these women. I think they have a good heart and they have their whole focus on the right thing is to make sure that their children don't grow up with these prejudices. So that's that for me. Well, that's it. So we'll wrap up. Uh, Elisa, we're thinking of you. Um, hopefully she'll be with us the next time. Thanks, Vicki. It's always been awesome. Yeah. It feels, it feels like we're sitting down having a cup of coffee, just chit-chatting. No, I'm having, <laughs> I'm having de uh, decaffeinated tea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for um, to all our listeners, and uh, please, if you have any comments or you would like to share your own um, book recommendations for summer or some of your favorite uh, novels, please, uh, you know, send us an email. And um, can they respond through? They can. They can do it through Google Plus. We're on Google Plus, correct, Vicky? Yes. And what is another way to respond to us? I suppose they can uh, tweet, Twitter. tweet, give it, yeah, Twitter, send us a tweet. And we have a face, Facebook, Facebook page. Yeah, Facebook page is good too. I, well, I'm not on Facebook that much anymore. I'm getting really lazy with Facebook. <laughs> so <laughs> all, all of the social stuff, the problem is, is that, you know, you're on it so often, then, you know, it's just such a time suck. You end up not doing anything else. But anyway, we would love to hear from you. So that's it for Three Geeky Ladies, Episode 52, Part 2. And uh, have a great week, everyone. All right. Well, check out one of the many club podcasts here on the Stoplight Network. There's Club Nintendo, Club PlayStation, Club Xbox, and Club Steam. Whether you love Mario, love Halo, love Crash Bandicoot, or just love some good old-fashioned PC gaming, make sure to check out one of the many club podcasts here on the Stoplight Network. These shows are weekly shows where we'll catch up on what we're playing, what uh, news stories are on that platform this week, 
and much, much more, all revolving around the wonderful world of video games. So check out Club Nintendo, Club PlayStation, Club Xbox, and Club Steam right here on the Stoplight Network. Ooh.